Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into our show, we're hoping you can give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show, and thanks to those of you who've already done it. Here's a little incentive to encourage you to do so. You can win a signed copy of my book, John Turner, An Intimate Biography of Canada's 17th Prime Minister. Let us know that you've left a rating or review by sending us a screenshot of it at onpolitics.tvo.org, and you'll be entered into our giveaway. We'll announce the winner at the end of June. Good luck to everyone. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, prickliness in Peel. The mayor of Brampton launches a broadside against the mayor of Mississauga over the future of Peel region. Nate Erskine-Smith is the first one in for the Ontario Liberal leadership race. Peter Weltman joins the podcast to discuss his exit from the Financial Accountability Office. And your column, my column, focuses on a planning change at the City of Toronto. And the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald at Queen's Park hidden in plain sight for three years now. It's Tuesday, May 16th, 2023, so let's get to it. Well, I'm going to beat you to it off the punch here. I know you're desperate to talk to me about the Leafs and how they went out in five games against the Florida Panthers, so go ahead, get it off your chest. Tell me what you want to tell me. (laughs) Uh, It shock some of our listeners that uh, even I, a, a hockey neophyte, was actually paying enough attention to realize that, yes, the, the Leafs lost their game, and it had something to do, or there was a controversy about a puck being in the net, and they the, the paused the game or something. <laughs> That's pathetic. That is just <laughs> pathetic. A puck in the net pausing the game or something? Yes, the whole season kind of turned on it, so, yeah. What are they do? <laughs> Look, they don't pay me for my sports commentary. Obviously, and thank goodness for that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, let's let's do a bit of a hard pivot here, because as much as we think we do a decent job on this podcast, we're not perfect. And I made a couple of mistakes in last week's pod, which I'd now like to correct the record on. We have talked on a couple of occasions about whether the NDP has an anti-Semitism problem because of tweets put out by Hamilton Center MPP Sarah Jama. I tried to make the point last week that NDP leader Marit Stiles is obviously not anti-Semitic because her partner, Jordan Berger, is Jewish. That's what I said. That is not quite accurate. Mr. Berger's paternal grandfather was Jewish. And Jordan himself emailed me to say that he considers himself, quote, half-Jewish of a sort. So I thank him for the clarification. Second correction, we talked about a report from the Ombudsman of Ontario last week, and I mentioned that the Ombudsman's office was established by former Premier Bill Davis's government, because you know I'm obliged to mention Bill Davis whenever I can, and that Dan Hill Sr. was the first Ombudsman. Okay, half right, half wrong. The Davis government did, in fact, set up the Ombudsman's office in the middle 70s, but Dan Hill was the third, not the first Ombudsman, Arthur Maloney, which is a name that will mean something to people who are my age and older. He was a well-known Tory lawyer back in the day, big John Diefenbaker enthusiast. He was the first ombudsman for the province of Ontario. So thank you to the ombudsman's office for contacting us with that information, and we are happy to correct the record. 
I just want to be clear that the uh, uh, errors of the podcast should not be uh, meant to imply that Mr. Berger is uh, a, a, any kind of George Santos uh, stealing <laughs> Jewish no. valor character. <laughs> no, God forbid. God forbid. No, we'll keep those problems south of the border. All right, let's get to open the mailbag. We do enjoy getting your feedback at the email address onpoliticsattvo.org. JMM, open her up. What have we got this week? Uh, Here's a question from listener Jane, who writes, With the increase in electric scooters and bicycles, what level of government is or should regulate where they may operate? Mm. I'm increasingly encountering these fast-moving vehicles on the sidewalks in Toronto. As an avid walker and senior, I'm concerned for my safety. Thank you. Jane, thank you for that. And yes, anyone who lives in a large-ish city in this province, no doubt, has discovered... You have to share the roads and sidewalks with cars and trucks and bicycles and skateboards and scooters and Vespas and roller skaters and on and on and on and on. Okay, JMM, who makes the rules for who can ride where? Uh, Jane's question refers to the sidewalks in Toronto, and so I'm I'm reasonably familiar with the rules here as both a journalist and as a cyclist. Uh, So I'll cut to the chase and say that uh, no one 14 or older is allowed to operate a bicycle, powered or otherwise, on any Toronto sidewalk. Uh, That is according to the city's own traffic bylaws. The rules uh, do make an exception for children 13 and under uh, on the sort of general principle that it might be safer for them and they're not as likely to be moving very fast. But uh, basically, if you see an adult on any kind of a bike riding on a sidewalk, uh, they are theoretically liable for a fine. Good to know, but uh, let's follow up. Jane asked a little bit more, which was, who does or should regulate the use of e-bikes? Right. And this is one of those cases where the answer is uh, basically everyone. <laughs> At least in Ontario, uh, you've got uh, municipalities, the province, and the federal government all uh, playing a role in regulating road safety. Uh, we've already talked about the municipal role. Um, in principle, it's the same in any other Ontario municipality. Uh, they can regulate who uses their sidewalks and roads. So you, you might live in a different municipality where it is legal to ride a bike uh, on the sidewalk, but certainly not in Toronto. Uh, The province owns and maintains provincial highways and regulates their use with the Highway Traffic Act, which includes substantial sections on who is allowed to operate an e-bike and how to do so safely. Uh, And then you've got the federal rule, where the national government sets uh, mandatory safety standards for manufacturing of the e-bikes themselves, and that includes things like uh, legal speed maximums for e-bikes. So really, everyone has a role to play on this file. Jane, I hope that clears things up for you. Uh, It sort of does, I guess. Yes. A reminder, any questions or comments, you can email us at onpolitics at tvo.org. And now we're on to issue one. You know, Brampton needs to be made whole in the sense that the water treatment facilities, the police headquarters we have built in Mississauga. And if the mayor of Mississauga thinks she can leave and not pay her bill, um, the residents of Brampton would be outraged. Any notion that the mayor of Mississauga could walk away from that and and stiff the residents of, of Brampton is offensive. Whoa, where did that come from? Out of the blue at a news conference in Brampton last week, that city's mayor launched a blistering attack on his Mississauga counterpart, Bonnie Crombie, on the issue of the future of Peel Region. Now, just a little background here. Peel Region was created 50 years ago by the Bill Davis government, but as the two biggest cities in Peel... Mississauga and Brampton have grown, Mississauga has expressed a strong desire to leave the region and be out on its own. The trouble is, divorces are complicated. And as you heard Mayor Patrick Brown say in that clip and elsewhere, he feels his taxpayers need to be compensated for contributing to both the water treatment plant and the police headquarters, both of which serve Brampton, 
but which are located in Mississauga. And the guy who has to resolve all this is Premier Doug Ford. And just yesterday, Monday morning, the Premier surprised everyone at an announcement in Mississauga by saying he'd always favored Mississauga going out on his own. This was a surprise to have the Premier just sort of come out and say it. (laughs) Normally, government policy changes are uh, announced a bit more formally, let's say. Uh, But at the same time, this has been developing for a while now. Uh, Depending on where you start counting, this has either been brewing at Queen's Park for months or years. Last year, the government announced it was going to conduct a review of regional governments after the municipal election in October. Uh, Peel Region is the largest regional government in the province, so it's always been natural to assume that there was going to be some change there, though it hasn't been clear exactly what. Um, I do want to remind our listeners, though, that back in 2019, the Ford government also proposed a regional review and shelved that after the, um, I think we can fairly call it a pretty disastrous spring budget that year uh, that forced the government to backtrack on a lot of its more controversial plans. So this news on Monday came out of an announcement that was uh, entirely unrelated to regional government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the premier seems to have basically confirmed, you know, big changes coming. Uh, and then for good measure, uh, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie came to the microphone and thanked the premier for that answer. I'm delighted that the Premier has publicly stated that uh, he's on the way to separating Peel. It gives me great, great pleasure. I know he's fulfilling a promise to Mayor, former Mayor Hazel McCallion and myself, and of course this makes great sense. So it looks as if it's a fait accompli. Okay, change is the fait accompli. What they will change, how they will change it, that's certainly, I guess, still up for discussion. So what are the options at this stage? Uh, one option would be to create a, a single tiers but super city of Peel, uh, essentially abolishing the three lower tier cities. Uh, or you could have uh, Mississauga and Brampton become their own uh, single tier cities, and then you would put Caledon somewhere else. Uh, Caledon, a much more uh, rural community, still uh, still lots of farmland there, so it wouldn't really fit if it were just glommed onto Brampton still. Uh, regardless, uh, Premier Ford said last week that he would make sure everyone is happy at the end of the day. We'll see if you can manage that. But I'll guarantee you that Brampton will always be taken care of, always, and it'll be made whole. Now, Brampton says it wants to be made whole during any divorce, but Mississauga has its grievances too. It claims it's paid 60% of the costs for regional services and yet has only 50% of the votes on Peel Region Council. Mississauga also claims that it's been subsidizing Brampton's growth, allowing Brampton to freeze property taxes for four of the past five budgets. Having said all this, JMM, you know I'm not a suspicious person, right? You do know that about me. We've been sitting opposite each other long enough. Oh, oh, you're very quiet. I'm waiting for you to. <laughs> just waiting for you to at least say, "Of course, I know that, Steve." Uh, you are. Uh, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Having said all this, JMM, you know I am not a suspicious person. But if I didn't know better, I'd swear the mayor of Brampton and the premier of Ontario coordinated last week's attack on the mayor of Mississauga at last week's news conference. Ford and Crombie were very cordial and businesslike yesterday in Mississauga. Okay, big change there. But here is why I think last week's news conference with Mayor Brown of Brampton was a bit of a conspiracy with the Premier of Ontario. Everyone knows Mayor Crombie is considering jumping into the Ontario Liberal leadership race. One of her advisors, whom I saw last week, put it at 80 percent, and that was then. I'm betting it's up to 95 percent by now. Ford and Brown are Tories. They Both briefly ran against each other for the Ontario PC Party leadership, but they've become good pals since then. 
Crombie is an ex-liberal MP and a potentially future provincial liberal leader. After Brown launched his broadside at Crombie, Ford came back to the microphone and said, I agree with everything Mayor Brown just said. Thus, my suspicion that the two Tories coordinated this attack on the former and maybe future liberal Mayor Crombie. Now, do you think I'm being overly suspicious here? I I almost never think it's possible to be too suspicious in politics, uh, so long as you, Steve, don't start bringing tinfoil hats into the recording booth for us to wear. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there actually is a a partisan divide here between the people involved, so uh, you're not you know, inventing that. And on top of that, it's been pretty clear for a while that there's no love lost between Crombie and Brown on a personal level. I also think it's remarkable how things have changed in five years or so. Remember that Brown is the mayor of Brampton in large part because the Tories stopped the uh, election that was planned for the chair of Peel Region, and Brown opted to run in Brampton instead. Both the premier and people in his orbit have had a, a pretty antagonistic relationship with Brown at times. But right now, it looks like Brown may end up having a stronger hand to play in whatever happens to Peel Region. The Tories may not want to do anything that is seen as being too overtly harmful to Mississauga's interests, since they've got a lot of MPPs at stake. Uh, But there's the little wrinkle that the current mayor of Mississauga might not still be in office by the time the next provincial election rolls around. And that is a perfect segue to issue two. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And I'm running for leader of the Ontario Liberal Party to make a difference, to make you see politics the way I see it, and to rebuild our party, ready to rebuild our province. That is Nate Erskine-Smith, who last week became the first of what we expect will be many, many entrants into the Ontario Liberal leadership race. A reminder, the winner won't be chosen until December 2nd, so still a long way to go. JMM, how did Erskine-Smith's kickoff go? As far as these things go, it seems to have been well-received. He launched with an announcement in Scarborough, just a a little bit outside of his riding in Beaches East York. Uh, I should say his federal riding. He launched with a a professionally produced YouTube video and and got some good press coverage. It it was easier to get that coverage. Coverage, though, because so far he's the only candidate announced. And that was a bit surprising to me. I, I kind of thought we would have a, a bit more competition to announce early, like right out the gate. Yeah, same here. Any word when we might get the next batch of candidates entering? Uh, we are expecting announcements from uh, Ottawa Centre MP Yasser Nakvi, uh, Kingston MPP Ted Shu, uh, the two Don Valley MPPs, uh, Stephanie Bowman from Don Valley West and Adil Shamji of Don Valley East. Uh, but of course, as we mentioned, all eyes are on uh, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie to see whether she will, in fact, take the plunge. Here is what the timetable looks like for the next several months, just so you can follow the bouncing ball here. Prospective candidates still have until September 5th. Okay, lots of time, September 5th, to get their entry fees and papers all organized. People who want to participate in this race have until September 11th to sign up as Liberal Party members so they can vote. November 25 and 26. Long way off still. That's when the voting will actually take place, leading to the announcement and the vote count on December 2nd of the winner. And with that, on to issue three. One of the more curious happenings at Queen's Park happened last week. That was the radio silence from anyone on whether the province's financial accountability officer would be rehired. The FAO was hired not by the Premier or the government, but rather by the Legislative Assembly, which takes its cue from a special committee made up of one government member, one opposition member, and the Speaker. But for whatever reason, the FAO's contract has expired, with no indication from anyone as to why that's happened. So let's see what we can find out. Let's welcome back to the pod Peter Weltman, who we assume is now officially the former 
Financial Accountability Officer for the province of Ontario. Peter, first of all, welcome back. And is that in fact the case? Are you now officially out of a job? So thanks for having me back. I do have a new title. It's called FFAO, Former Financial <laughs> Accountability Officer. So at the moment, I am no longer the accountability financial accountability officer. My term did expire uh, May, I think it was May 6th officially. So it's a five-year position, five-year appointment. And, uh, and it's done. So I'm at the moment entertaining some very interesting other opportunities, but one of them is not the FAO. Has anyone from the government or, for that matter, the opposition told you why your contract wasn't renewed? I have heard nothing officially or unofficially on whether or not I was going to be renewed up until Friday afternoon when there was that article in the uh, Trillium newsletter where uh, I think, um, I don't remember exactly, but I think either a member of the government, there was a spokesperson saying, yes, his contract is over and blah, 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 blah. And I did get a letter from the speaker thanking me for for my service. So nobody nobody told me that they wouldn't renew me, uh, despite my having asked um, a few times over the few months, given that other officers were renewed and given that was sort of the expectation. In any event, I also knew going in on day one that I'd have a five-year term and and that's where it is. In terms of why the powers that be chose to communicate the message to me in this way, I have no clue. It makes no sense to me, and it's not particularly respectful, frankly. Well, okay, I want to follow up on that, and I'm going to ask this in as neutral and open-ended a way as I possibly can. What do you think about the way this has all been handled? Oh, I think it could have been done much better. It was, it was It's disrespectful to the office by letting this thing go as a last minute sort of, oh, we're not going to rush to replace. And, you know, and not and not addressing my question was, you know, listen, I get it. It's five years. And if you don't want me back, that's fine. Just let me know so I can, you know, start thinking about my next steps. So that is not what one would consider to be courteous and respectful behavior. Your office did a lot of very good work, which is why we had you on this podcast so often. As you look back, uh, what work are you proudest of? I'm very proud of the climate change work we did. Um, That was finally able to get a number to the impacts of mitigating or at least adapting to the weather and the climate as it was changing. And that was was going to affect us in Ontario and affect the government's ownership and maintenance of public infrastructure. Uh, That was huge. And nobody around the world has ever done this before. And that that was shocking to me. But when when we started working on it and I started reaching out to folks, it was quite new. And we were asked consequently to present it in many different fora around the world. Um, we did another great piece of work, which was, um, you know, our estimating our ability to develop our own program costing model. So beforehand, before when I started, when we did a budget outlook, we would always take the government's program costs at face value. That wasn't something I was prepared to live with for a long time if I didn't have to, because that's not an independent look. There's a lot that goes on in spending, as we found out over the years. Um, that's why it's important to have an independent uh cost estimate of a program spending estimate. And I'd like to say, frankly, uh, in the last two years, since we really got this thing up and running, we've turned out to come in a lot closer to the final number than, than the government has in its, in its program cost estimates. If I could follow up on that, what uh, did you hope you could have done uh, but didn't get a chance to uh, because of the way this has ended? Well, there's more to do on the climate side. I think that was something we've been, you know, we've certainly been kicking around. We've 
we're starting to get our heads around some infrastructure work. Infrastructure is a huge piece, not for this government, you know, not just for this government, but from a policy point of view going forward, we have increased immigration. We have uh, very out of date transportation infrastructure. In many cases, we have to find a place for people to live and we have to be able to deliver the services to them as they come into the country. So we were really, you know, trying to get ahead on, on, on that one. We were tinkering around a bit with energy policy, but that was a longer term piece, especially um, as we decarbonize and you need to move to electricity, where's that electricity going to come from? What's that going to cost? We wanted to look at things like um, in healthcare. Healthcare was starting, we were starting to slowly be able to peel back the onion, as it were, to get a better handle as to what the key cost drivers were. All that work can continue. The question is, you know, it'll have to be under another person and um, and that person may have different priorities too. I'm not quite ready yet to give up asking you questions about <laughs> how this all went down uh, because um, I have to say, I haven't, I'm not sure I've seen things handled quite this way before, maybe with the environmental commissioner once upon a time, but that was, uh, that was a little bit different. It's a frequent trick by governments that when they don't like the news you're delivering, they either cut the, your budget or they let a contract expire or they refuse to fill a vacancy, that kind of thing. Do you have reason to believe that this government wants to starve your office, your former office now, into submission? I have no insight into that. Uh, but I will say that if they found, I mean, if somebody found, because remember, it's not just the government, it's, alleged, it's the Board of Internal Economy, so it's a member from each part. Um, so if there was some sense that our profile was too high, or this is one way to do it, right? You, you hide behind process. You just say, oh, contract's up. You don't say a word. Um, the law provides for an automatic replacement in terms of the acting position. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to take chip for the decision. You can run away and hide behind process. And that's the part I think that annoys me, right? I have invested, and I use that word. I've heard that word a lot. We make investments. Well, I've invested a lot of time and energy in ensuring that we really did shed light and not heat. And if there was something that we were going to say or do that I thought might be contentious or might create some communications issues for anybody, government included, I had lots of back channels that I had established as soon as I started the job to make sure that we were all understanding that this was the rationale for the whatever. They had an opportunity to prepare a response. We provided the government with copies of our reports, our final reports, 48 hours in advance to allow them to prepare a response. Because again, my job was to shed light, not heat. Now, maybe... I was shedding too much light, but I sure wasn't shedding heat. Yeah, I was going to say there were oftentimes during our interviews when I tried to get you to be more provocative and you wouldn't be, much to my chagrin. But uh, let me just say, I can understand why the government might want to give you a hard time. But your work was great fodder for questions for the opposition during question period because uh, because your work was good. And I guess I'm wondering, okay, I get why the government's giving you a hard time on this. Where's the opposition been? Why have they not gone to bat for you? I I I couldn't I don't know. I don't know what, what what's going on. I mean, as I said before, there are two of them on the committee. One might have decided to go to bat and we're speculating here, and the other one said no. I mean, there's no way to know. I'm not privy to those discussions. Nobody is. Um and uh I I don't know. Um and maybe everybody felt 
that they wanted a you know they were getting a little tired of the curler and the glasses and they wanted a different look i have no idea uh you mentioned entertaining some leads uh what comes next so uh what can you tell us about that what's next for peter weltman well i'm hoping it'll be in a similar domain it probably won't be public sector but there will be probably some public sector involvement and it'll have to do a lot with numbers and explaining uh you know complicated concepts to wide variety of audiences. So that's where I'm hoping I end up. So in some respects, doing a lot of what I've been doing, um, working with a great team and keep being able to deliver some some groundbreaking reports and analysis. So that's probably, you know, I know that's fairly generic, um, but that's really where I'm, I'm trying to head to. And just to be clear, you would have come back had the government decided or had the the Board of Internal Economy, which makes a recommendation to the whole Legislative Assembly, you'd have come back for a second well, I term. Well, I had admit, I'd been public about that. I had said to people, you know, I was public. I said, you know, I there are peop, other folks interested in hiring me. Uh, so it's not like I'm desperate to hang on this job, but I love the job. And I think we do it really well as a team. And if the opportunity... Uh, you know, had arisen that I could serve again or continue to serve, I would have certainly taken taken them up on that. Any last words for our listeners? It's been a great privilege to be Ontario's financial accountability officer for the past five years. We've had a we built a terrific team. I was given lots of leeway to build a great team to produce some really important work. I think we've really moved things along with this office. Um, I think MPPs um, have, you know, a lot of them have told me they really appreciated the work that we did because it helped them, you know, not just maybe hold the government to account in question period, but also to help them understand how government finances work because it's a bit of a complicated thing. And uh, they were appreciative of the help. Um, and all parties, by the way. So, I mean, we, you know, we did brief the Conservative caucus twice. I don't think any legislative budget officer around the world has ever briefed the government caucus before. We've done it twice. We've done it with the others as well. So I think we were highly, you know, regarded. The work is highly regarded. And I'm very proud to have been part of that. I think we heard a phone in the background. Maybe that's somebody with a job offer, so we should let you go get that. Peter, uh, we always appreciate the fact that you took our calls and came on our program here as often as you did, and we wish you well going forward and, and hope you'll continue to be a guest when we call on you in the future. Certainly. Be happy to, and I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. Um, it really has. That's Peter Weltman, FFAO. The former Financial Accountability Officer for the province of Ontario. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thank you, Steve. So I think one thing that uh, I try to keep in mind is that, you know, this is not unprecedented in the uh, the facts here. Um, you know, there have been former legislative officers or other previous legislative officers that the government of the day did not love. These Because these appointments are made with all-party consent, the only thing the government has to do if they don't want to reappoint a person is just they don't have to do anything, right? The contract ends and the person goes away. And, you know, I think of um, Andre Marais, the former ombudsman, was uh, definitely not um, beloved by the liberals of the day, if I can put it that way. Um, and uh, what he very publicly uh, asked for uh, a, uh, a renewal of a contract and uh, did not get it. And what is, what is distinct here, though, is is this feels like it was handled disrespectfully. <laughs> yeah, poorly on purposely. And uh, I'll tell you, one of the problems we have in public life these days is that it's difficult to attract good people 
uh, who have made a name for themselves in the private sector, let's say, and we say, come into public life, try to have a positive influence on the agenda of the province or of the country or your city or whatever, and, uh, you know, put some prime earning years behind you so that you can give back to uh, the place that you, uh, you know, live and serve in then they are going to treat people as disrespectfully as this and handle this so unprofessionally, and that's supposed to encourage more people to do that? I don't know. I think that just doesn't look great. That's not a great look. And beyond that, uh, I understand why the government of the day was not keen on going to bat for Peter Weltman, but it's beyond me why the opposition didn't. I mean, Peter Weltman's work, the work of that office, was very helpful to them during question period. It gave the opposition... a you know, very reliable information on surgical wait back times, diagnostic testing back um, backlogs, uh, how many nurses we'd need to get operating rooms up and running again, a whole range of issues, like it's just a wide variety of things. Uh, they did good work, and this just feels like a very unprofessional way to end things. You know, I, I one hypothesis here, and this is, you know, we have no information really to go on, so this is a, a purely uninformed hypothesis in that sense. Um, you know, if the government was to say to the NDP, we're not going to agree to, to reappoint Weltman, but was willing to give the opposition party a free hand, you could sort of see the argument there. But I mean, from the perspective of what's best for the province, you really got to hope, I, I guess in sports, they use the, the, the term uh, value above replacement, right? <laughs> the replacement here was or the person being replaced, rather, was very valuable. And I'm not sure how valuable a person would have to be in order to be worth losing Weltman. Can I just say how adorable it is that you're using sports terminology with me? The term in baseball is actually wins above replacement, war. But it works just as well the way you've described it. <laughs> Value above replacement works as well. Good stuff. Let's do another edition of Your Column, My Column, where JMM and I chat about one column that each of us recently wrote for TVO.org. Over to you, my friend. Uh, Steve, you wrote a column that just went up yesterday at TVO.org on uh, one of the worst eyesores in Ontario's capital city. Uh, what's that about? Well, this is about when you're coming north on University Avenue in downtown Toronto, and for years and years and years, as you look north up University Avenue, you see what is truly one of the great vistas in our province. It is the view of... Queen's Park. It is the Legislative Assembly building, gorgeous pink palace that we often refer to. For the last three years, that view has been really quite marred because at the southern end of the precinct, that's what they call the land where Queen's Park is, you've had the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald all boarded up, and it is a terrible eyesore, and the whole thing right now looks ridiculous. Frankly, it's a monument to uh, ineffectiveness and indecisiveness on the behalf of uh, politicians at Queen's Park. Well, okay, my column is about the fact that now, after a long three-year period, there's a subcommittee of the legislature called Procedure and Legislative Affairs that is now responsible for making a decision about this. And at some point, they're going to turn their attention to it. They'll hold hearings. They'll, they'll presumably recommend at the end of the day what the legislature needs to do, either take the cladding off and let's see Sir John A. again, or take him down entirely because he's too controversial and they're afraid of him getting vandalized, or maybe a third way, namely putting up a plaque sort of contextualizing McDonald's place in history because it's obviously different today than it was when the statue first went up. Right now, uh, frankly, it's just a monument to ineffectiveness and indecisiveness, and that is not a good look. 
Okay, what did you write about that you want to tell the class about this week? Uh, I wrote a piece for the website about a planning change that was passed at Toronto City Council last week. I, I will not get into the details here as much as I know that's the, the oh, hottest so possible action. I'm so disappointed. But, you know, it's, it's an important planning change that will hopefully see uh, thousands of new homes built in the city of Toronto. And it's substantial not just because really any substantial change made by the province's largest city is sort of by definition important. But I also, uh, for our listeners, I think it's worth mentioning because it's uh, more substantial housing policy than we have seen from the provincial government really in the last year. And uh, I think we're probably going to be waiting at least a, a little bit longer before we see another big move by the province. Very good. And a reminder, you can read both of these columns on our website. That's tvo.org. And uh, with any luck, Matthew will put links to both of them in the show notes so you can see them more easily. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. Please remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on about Premier Ford's latest attack on the Greenbelt, which he last week called a scam and a fancy liberal invention. What's going on there? Also, make sure to follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, uh, help a friend follow the show, too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. That's onpolitics at tvo.org. Here's an email from a listener named Zoe who loves our... Nerds on Politics Features. You know, those little things you see on YouTube, two or three or four minutes long. She writes, I watch TVO's programs frequently. As a new immigrant to the country, they are such important channels for me to understand the Canadian society and politics. More importantly, they help a lot in detecting many blind spots in my knowledge system about democratic institutions, and it is crucially important for a student in the field of political science. Public education, I believe, is pivotal for preserving a healthy and functional democracy. Thank you and your colleagues for your consistent contributions for this cause. Well, thank you for that wonderful comment, Zoe, and do keep watching our Nerds on Politics features, plus all the other good stuff such as this podcast, our columns, the agenda, McGrath's columns, etc., etc. I'm glad that you included me in that list. <laughs> uh, this week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara, recorded this week by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Carla Lucetta and Jonathan Hallowell. Until next Tuesday, everybody. Bye-bye. See you then. <laughs>